Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer, and welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. It's week 102 of the two weeks to flatten the curve lockdown. Tis indeed. And, uh, today we are devoting the podcast to the frightening and tragic invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, and what's happening in Ukraine brings together so much of so many things that we talk about all the time on this podcast um, and in our journalistic careers. And we're going to discuss today, we're going to be looking at how this could have been completely, absolutely avoided if people had used common sense, if, if politicians would use common sense. So, you know, more than ever, we realise elections matter. Idiotic ideas matter. Um, and we have an energy expert joining us later to discuss, uh, kind of do a deep dive into exactly what's happened here and how, how it happened and why it happened. Um, but first, we got back very, very late last night from, from Florida and we were, the, the flight was delayed and then we were on the, the tar- tarmac forever. And Phelan started writing down some thoughts about this, as I said, very tragic, horrible events that's going on um, with this invasion. Um, and I w- I'd love for Phelan to actually just, I mean, it's kind of an unusual thing we're going to do today, but it's, I really would really like Phelan to just read this because it, it's, it's, everything that, it's everything that we have said about about basically, it's basically everything that we have talked about in this podcast for years, um, and it's very crystallised in the worst possible way right now. So, what's happening in the Ukraine? Uh, this reminds me of Harold Macmillan, uh, the British Prime Minister in the 1960s, who was once asked, what's the biggest problem a statesman can face? And he said, events, my dear boy, events. He was asked that by a journalist, and that was his reply. Events, my dear boy, events. I've always hated this quote because it pushes the idea that nothing in the world is predictable or preventable, or that governments cannot stop external forces or take steps to counter them. Let's be clear, the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, or actually by Vladimir Putin, was entirely predictable. And if not preventable, there were steps that the elites and their governments could have taken that would have made this invasion very painful for Russia and for the Russian elites. Events like the invasion of the Ukraine happen because bad people think they can get away with them. But of course, the smart people knew better. The cool people, the people who have their Netflix deals and their flunkies who have their podcasts and their Hollywood consulting roles and their think tank leadership positions and their roles in the Biden administration. They told us not to be silly. Do you remember this clip? Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that Al-Qaeda is a threat because a few months ago when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not Al-Qaeda, you said Russia. In the 1980s or now, calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. One of the main reasons Putin is now able to do exactly what he wants is because he controls the energy supplies of almost every European country. That is why sanctions are not going to be fatal against him or Russia. Because he can retaliate and turn off the gas to Eastern and Western Europe. He can basically turn off the heating. Basically, these countries are funding Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. They are sending billions to Russia every week and also leaving themselves so energy vulnerable that they cannot stop taking Russia's gas. This is not an event. This is not unpredictable. This is not an act of God. 
This was the deliberate policy of so many of the ruling elites in Western Europe and America. They declared war on fracking. And they've declared war on fossil fuels. But when they declared war on fracking, they decided that lies about pollution were more palatable, were cooler than having a maniac in charge of your heating systems in countries that experience brutal, brutal winters. And you know what? You don't have to be one of the cool kids to know this. We laid this out in our 2013 documentary, Frack Nation. For us, it was as obvious as the nose on my face that rejecting fracking, that phasing out fossil fuels, was ceding power and money to Russia, and that Europe would bitterly regret this sooner rather than later. So, of course, Russia was encouraging and funding such madness. Let's just play a clip from our 2013 documentary, Fractation. Remember, this is almost 10 years ago. If you're listening to this on audio only, the first person speaking is British journalist James Dellingpole, and the second person is the Financial Times correspondent Neil Buckley, who has witnessed Putin up close and personal for many years. Shale gas is the miracle of the early 21st century. In terms of safety and environmental friendliness and economic efficiency, shale gas is about the best thing going in the world right now. And the only reason, the only reason that shale gas is, is not developing faster than it is, particularly in, in Europe, I mean, in America it's already great success, is because of these disingenuous objections which are being raised by the environmental movement, funded, I would suspect, by, for example, the Russians, who are big producers of natural gas. I was at a dinner with Prime Minister Putin uh, recently with a group of foreign journalists and foreign academics who are invited every year. He doesn't eat very much, we all eat, ask him questions, he answers the questions. But the final question was about gas, uh, and particularly about shale gas. Um, and it was very interesting to see his reaction, um, and a real illustration, I think, of the concern that shale gas is, is causing in Russia, because it was one of the few moments in the dinner where Putin really became quite engaged, almost agitated. And he said, if you look at photographs which have been taken from a helicopter or a plane of, of where this has been done in the US, you can see the damage. And he essentially said, when people in Europe understand the implications of this uh, of, of this technology and what it does to the environment, then they're not going to want to do it, and therefore it's not going to be a threat to us. And they point to France, which has already banned it, and say, look, that's just the first one of many. And this is is somewhat amusing that that suddenly Russia finds you know its, it's conscience about the environment. At the moment, all the countries in Eastern Europe are hugely dependent on Russia. They have very few domestic resources of their own. And the European market is the absolutely crucial market for Gazprom because that's where it makes the bulk of its profit. And of course, Putin himself has very close ties with Gazprom. In fact, I would say that Russia is screwed if it can't export its gas. So it really is very important for Russia that the shale gas revolution does not happen. It is also in Russia's interest to fund those environmental groups which are committed to campaigning against fracking. That's how, how it works. 
I'll give you one example. Poland is currently a net importer of gas. Where does that gas come from? It comes from Russia. The problem with relying on Russia for gas is that Russia now has a, a proven history of using gas um, as um, a kind of tool or rather blunt instrument of uh, diplomacy. A natural gas crisis looming over Europe has taken a sharp turn for the worse. A contract dispute between Russia and Ukraine has left several cities without natural gas in the dead of winter. Without prior warning, gas supplies to some EU member states have been substantially cut. This situation is completely unacceptable. Even in the Cold War, Russia never cut off gas supplies to Europe, but under Mr. Putin, they have twice done so in recent years. So the prospect of becoming gas producers for these countries is a very attractive one indeed. You go to Poland, you hear a lot about it. There you go. Then, in the same documentary, we went to Poland to hear how a country like Poland is also being held hostage by Putin and his energy dominance. Let's hear that clip. I met up with Sabina, a pensioner who fought in World War II and survived the Cold War. Today, she spends half her pension on energy. Your pension is, is 800. Yeah, so your pension is 800. Tak. Your electricity bill is 266. Tak. Your gas bill is 377. Tak. Tak. It doesn't leave much money. We saw all this years ago. And we don't have a Netflix deal or a publishing contract or a HBO contract to produce documentaries. By the way, you can watch Frack Nation on Amazon Prime until they realize it's there and they'll probably cancel it. But, and by the way, Hillary Clinton knew all this. And she even confirmed what James Dellingpole was saying there, that Putin was funding environmental groups to oppose fracking and pipelines in order to ensure that the Europeans kept tens of billions of dollars flowing, that he could maintain his vice-like grip on Europe and its energy needs. Hillary Clinton, in a private paid speech delivered in Canada on the June 18th, 2014, said this. We were even up against phony environmental groups, and I'm a big environmentalist, but these were funded by the Russians to stand against any effort uh, on this pipeline, that fracking, that whatever. Uh, that will be a problem for you. And a lot of money supporting that message was coming from Russia. And remember, this speech was delivered after Hillary Clinton had been Secretary of State for almost five years and had access to the highest level of top-secret intelligence. She has recently spoken about the invasion of Ukraine. And of course, the media want to focus on an out-of-context Trump quote, but no one has asked her about the culpability of democratic allies in the environmental movement to this current crisis. And according to Secretary Clinton, these allies, these environmental allies, these are the people that Democrats partner up with. They were receiving Russian money to undermine U.S. national security and the national security of many European nations. That's the real Russia collusion. And by the way, President Trump was on about this whilst he was president. Let's listen to Trump's thoughts on energy in Europe and how he was treated. Listen 
to the laughter of the elites at his comments in September 2018. Germany will become totally dependent on Russian energy if it does not immediately change course. Here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintaining our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. It has been the formal policy of our country since President Monroe that we reject the interference of foreign nations in this hemisphere and in our own affairs. So listen to that laughter. I'm sure they're finding it so funny today in the Ukraine and Poland and Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania. Talking of that Trump quote when he described the invasion of the Ukraine by Putin as quote-unquote genius, it's clear to me, and of course it's clear to everyone in the media, that recognising the military brilliance of your enemies does not mean you in any way support them. For example, 9-11 was the most impactful military operation in decades when it happened. It was genuine shock and awe. It was gobsmacking especially considering the meagre resources Al-Qaeda had at their disposal. The impact of that attack lasted decades and has turned the world upside down. We can say that, but it doesn't mean we approve of it. Similarly, we can say all their military decisions are dumb. The Allied invasion of Italy in 1944 was a disaster. Trench warfare was a stupid way to fight World War I because of the invention of the machine gun. Some military decisions are genius, some are stupid. It doesn't mean the people behind them are good or bad or that you approve of them or disapprove of them. So similarly, Trump can say Putin's timing and tactics were genius. But then, why does no one quote this other comment from Trump when he said, quote, the Russian attack on the Ukraine is appalling. We are praying for the proud people of the Ukraine. God bless them all. And I have to say this. I would disagree with Trump that Putin's move was a genius. It was all too easy. It was simple. And it was facilitated by elites who stopped these countries using their own fossil fuels and who stopped their own countries exporting gas and other fossil fuels to Europe. The Biden administration is holding up permits for liquefied natural gas export terminals. And you have useful idiots in Ireland, like the Environment Minister, who has intervened to stop the development of a liquefied natural gas import terminal in Shannon, Ireland. According to Minister Eamon Ryan, it is a senseless plan which could use fracked gas from the United States and that would go directly against government policy. Well, is it part of government policy in Europe that we must be dependent on Putin's gas, that we must send Putin billions of dollars a month, tens of billions of dollars a month, so that he can fund reckless foreign adventurism and invasion and destruction. So this was not an event. This was not unexpected. This was the most predictable event in recent history. And the smart people helped make it happen. And therefore the smart people, the so-called smart people, should have nothing to do with with solving that problem until they admit that their errors made it more likely. But being a liberal, being a leftist, being an environmentalist means you never have to say you're sorry. And they will never say they are sorry. We must 
take them kicking and screaming and get those policies changed. We must, fossil fuels have led to unprecedented prosperity and progress in the modern world. Those who are opposed to fossil fuels, those who want to push windmills and solar panels are the regressives, not the progressives. And we have seen the price to pay for regressivism in Europe. It is it has been spilled on the streets of Kiev. It has been spilled in the cities and towns and villages of the Ukraine. And it's coming to Estonia and it's coming to Latvia and it's coming to Lithuania and it might be coming to Poland and it's coming to Romania and Bulgaria. And then maybe it's coming to Germany and we need to stop it. And the way we can stop it is by making these countries energy independent and that their their money is staying in their own country so they can build up their defense forces and they can push crippling sanctions against Russia and against Putin that will make these people think again before they start invading other countries. That is what they will listen to. That is what they must do. And it's not, you know, the, you know. thank you for all of that, Phil. This is a huge amount of things to think about there. Two other really small points that I think are kind of just visuals over the last uh, days since this invasion began. Um, the first one is, you know, in Ukraine, they're handing out guns to civilians so people can just truck up and everyone is getting guns handed to them. And the whole world is kind of united and saying, bully for them, good for them. And, you know... For all the anti-gun activists in this country who constantly harp on about the Second Amendment, you know, um, why would why would anyone need a gun? You why know? would you Why would you ever need a gun? Well, um, here uh, here's a case in point. Here, here's a case in point of something that has just happened. But the other small point I want to make is, I'm 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 deafened not by the shouts and the screams from all the feminists who are who should should we should be hearing more from them because are surely feminists who are worth their weight in gold. I mean, surely any self-respecting feminist would be objecting strenuously to the fact that women and children um, are leaving Ukraine and all men from 18 to 60 are being kept behind and conscripted. I am really surprised that the feminists of the world are not speaking out and saying, this is unfair on women. Women would really love to be conscripted and thrown in front of the Russian forces um, surrounding um, Kiev. I mean, you know, and, they, seem and, and, be, they seem to be very quiet on this one. Uh, that's the that's the equality thing to do, Anne, wouldn't it? It be would be the equality thing to that do. That the women should um, should face the same draft, the same conscription as Absolutely. the men. But it's the men who are being prevented from uh, leaving the country and the women... And children can go. I'll and tell you, great time to be a woman. Great time to be a woman in Ukraine, by the way. I mean, and I don't mean that the way it sounds. I mean, I just think to be able to get out of there um, to safety. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of men who would really prefer to be getting out of the country rather than standing um, and defending them and defending the country instead. And, and, and it's, just, it's just an interesting one. It's an interesting point. You know, if you're 44 million Ukrainians with guns, that makes people think again. And I remember I was at a, a speech given by someone and. The, the Americans had got hold of the plans for the Japanese to invade the United States during the Second World War when, uh, you know, when, when they were winning, going to win the war, then they would have to invade the United States. And they had three different ways of invading. And none of them came through Texas, right? Yeah. None of them. And it was written, you know, why was there, uh, why, you know, why are you going this way? And, and, and it was there in, in the memos. Basically, in Texas, there's a gun behind every blade of grass. 
And, you know, if you have 44 million, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many men and women there are in the Ukraine. If they have, you know, if they, if they have these, you know, so-called assault weapons, then it's, it, it, it softens the cough of, of people. Uh, and who might, who might, who might decide to be aggressive. But I have to say, I mean, you know, there's a lot, as I say, there's a lot of dodgy information coming out and there's a lot of, you know, all the, I think all the experts, all the people who are, who are, who are COVID experts have now become uh, foreign policy and Ukrainian experts. And, you know, you see, oh, Putin's invasion has been slowed up. I'm not sure it has been slowed up. I'm sure, I think he's just surrounding con- cities before he levels them. And it's not a good, it's not good. And it's, and our hearts go out to all the people of the Ukraine. And, uh, a terrible time. Terrible. We're going to go over right now to, um, we talked about, um, we have John Harpole, um, energy expert, a very dear friend of ours for many, many years, um, who we, we have discussed these very issues with for over for over a decade. Um, we're just going to go over to that interview right now. So we're joined now by our good friend, uh, John Harpole, uh, who we've known for a long time. We'll discuss actually the very interesting first day, the day we first, first time had, we met yeah, later in the interview. But just to give you some background, John is the, is the founder and president of Mercator Energy, which is a natural gas services company, it's uh, it's a and, and it's a brokerage and energy market analysis company. Basically, he assists producers and end users throughout the United States in selling and and sourcing natural gas supplies. But Mercator and John also asks also works as an advisor at often at CEO CEO level about uh, geopolitics and energy. And really, he has a, a worldwide view on on energy, on poverty, on politics, on power. Um, when we talk about how we first met John, you'll see why we really wanted to bring him back uh, for for this interview because there's, there's nobody who knows more about the the energy story that really is the Ukrainian story as well. So, welcome to the show, John. Thank you. It's so so wonderful to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start first to talk about how we first met. My memory is that it was at an energy conference in Denver. Uh, we were screening our documentary, uh, Not Evil, Just Wrong. You have a different memory of it, but but funny, it was the content of your speech I remember more than anything else. Now tell me where it was and what, what you were talking about. It was actually, and I looked it up, it was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Correct, mm-hmm. yes. Western Business Roundtable. And I was kind of walking through the room I had to give a speech later and I heard two Irishmen <laughs> microphone and that, so it just caught my attention so I stopped and I listened and um, I think I approached you both afterwards just to introduce myself we had just taken a trip to Ireland not long before that um, mm-hmm. I've got a German last name but we like to say my my German grandfather got lucky so we're 75 percent Irish uh, yes very good but you were you feel you were actually so interested in in the numbers that I showed in terms of the European countries that were reliant on Russian natural gas. It, it, and that's really it, what kicked off the it, conversation. It's, it's very funny. I mean, I don't know why I was so interested in it at the time. We were doing Not Evil, Just Wrong, which was very much about coal and the American coal industry and how, how coal, America had so much coal, but it was being asked to get rid of it and how that was going to affect the poorest people in the developing world and the poorest people in America, the increased energy prices, as we've seen now. But something, something caught my eye. It was just that geopolitical uh, story that, that, you know, and this, bear in mind, this was pre-fracking, right? So this is pre the American yes. fracking miracle. And I, I still remember this. It's amazing what you remember, this slide that you had. 
Uh, and you give you give a slide uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. It was 14 years ago. You give a, a presentation about how America was running out of conventionally drilled natural gas, and the, you had a slide up about the proportion uh, about two states that made up an enormous proportion of the gas reserves in the world, and how we were going to have to be nice to them uh, going forward. So tell us who were those people and. Uh, what was the situation America was facing pre-fracking? Well, your memory serves you well. The two states were really um, Qatar, and then more importantly to this conversation, Russia. I, I had been the natural gas buyer for General Electric uh, in my early days. And so I used to, in the late 80s, fly 150,000 miles a year, sourcing natural gas for GE industrial plants all over the country. Well. Four years before I met you, I started working on an import project for natural gas, and that was uh, a liquefied natural gas import facility on the west coast of the U.S. So I partnered up, believe it or not, with an Indian tribe because we were very interested in the sovereign nation status, not having to deal with the federal government or really even the state government. So we were looking to really play on the sovereign nation status. But when I started looking at the international picture for natural gas, I was stunned at what was happening with Russia and how Russia controlled the majority of the natural gas that flowed to Europe at that time. In 2004, and people will forget this, Gazprom, the Russian uh, weaponized natural gas industry owned by the Kremlin, Gazprom thought that they were gonna hire 200 natural gas marketers in Houston. And so the picture in 2003, four and five was that by Today, by 2022, we'd have to import about 30 to 40% of the natural gas that we would use in the US. We'd have to import that. And the most likely candidate at the time was Russia. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, yeah. So, so that was how it was facing then. And I think, don't think we knew it at the time, but there was a fracking revolution just starting. Tell us about how the fracking revolution changed all that in America. It changed, it changed the world. And I've been thinking about it so much these last few days that what would have happened to the U.S. and what would be happening to Europe right now if the hydraulic fracturing revolution had not happened. Now, mind you, I had invested quite a bit of money on an import project that I worked on in 2003, 4, and 5. And so I was keenly aware of the potential, if you will, threat to my project that U.S. production might present. And so I watched it very closely. But quite honestly, cheering all along the lines. But it was obvious to us in 2005 that the breakthrough in the combination of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing was one that we weren't going to need to import natural gas. In fact, at that time, the gentleman that was ahead of the game for everyone, Sharif Suki, started looking at his LNG import facilities as potentially LNG export facilities. And that's really the time period where we started to be able to appreciate it, you, you'll appreciate this. I was moderating a conference in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, uh, for Heart Energy, and there was a discussion between two of my panelists as to whether or not the Marcellus Shale Formation had 500,000 drillable locations or 750,000. Good, good. They were arguing that, and it was really, <laughs> at that moment in time, it's like, oh my gosh. Not yeah. only are we gonna be a superpower with respect to natural gas, but we can see the politics of the world change because we can actually present a challenge to Russia and their kind of weaponized natural gas effort in Europe. 
which unfortunately the Europeans fell right into. Yeah, well, this is this is the part. I mean, where you know this, this last days, John. That's why you got in touch with me, and I thought immediately you need to come on and explain all of this because I think there is an extraordinary level of ignorance in Europe um, to the to the level to which they are dependent on Russia. Can you paint that picture of dependence? Uh, wh- what is what's the relationship between Russia um, and the rest of Europe in but terms also, of energy? But also, also, I think it needs to be clear, Europe really rejected rejected the fracking revolution well that's there's the two things yeah 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 Yeah, exactly let's do the first thing first we thought in 2008 that russia would supply 70 to 80 percent on average for the european continent Mm -hmm. well thanks to the u.s shale revolution that number is down to 50 percent but the problem is still if you cut off that natural gas supply which is the imputed threat half your people are going to freeze to death half of the ammonia plants if not all the ammonia plants that make fertilizer will close. And so Putin set this trap, you guys, and he'd been yeah. working on it for 20 years, and there's no question. And one of the issues that he did is he started, as an old KGB officer would do, he started a disinformation campaign. Correct. As Correct. As you guys experience, and we'll talk yeah. a little bit more about that, but it was so effective that this, we know, for example, the Center for European Studies released a report saying that Putin spent $95 million on a disinformation campaign directly targeted at hydraulic fracturing because yes. he didn't want he didn't want the shale revolution that occurred in the US to occur in, in France. Can, 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 I, can I just say can I just can I just say look I think they're they're wrong about that. I think he spent a lot more money. I agree. Uh, because <laughs> the, and, the only and, number out there is 95 million. And, and, and even five times that look if he'd spent 500 million it was an excellent return on investment. Crazy return on investment. But get this so since he did that the following countries, seven big NATO countries ban fracking. France, yep. Bulgaria, Netherlands, Germany, our friends, the Irish, UK, Spain. We look at it, and I think you you all experienced, you know, the Josh Fox Gasland story. That's what I want. And I'm, I'm certain, I've, we, you and I, have, we've never, the three of us have never spoken about this, but there is no question in my mind that he was funded by sources from outside of the country to put out the story about gas. Well, well, John, John, let me say, you know, forget about us thinking that, right? And and certainly, you know, it's a suspiciously well-funded movement, but forget about us thinking that. As we said earlier in the show, Hillary Clinton- Yeah, Hillary Clinton. Believed the same. Hillary Clinton gave, gave behind remember that when her speeches the transcripts of her speeches down in brazil she gave a speech down in South to, to gold and she gave a speech to goldman sachs bankers i think it was uh that saying that the anti-fracking movement was being funded by russia this is again one of the faults my faults of the trump white house was why didn't they then initiate a justice department investigation into into genuine russian interference in american inter, internal national security matters and why isn't the Biden White House now issuing subpoenas or the Justice Department issuing subpoenas to all these environmental movements or even questionnaires, under oath questionnaires saying, have you, to your knowledge, received any indirect or direct funding from so- Russian sources? And, and we I, all know how this works, that the money doesn't come from, you know, it doesn't sign by I, Vladimir Putin. It goes through the ta- some a lawyer in the Bahamas that with a lawyer in Washington who then funds it, sends it to the Tides Foundation. So um, 
the, by the way, it's not, I mean, these people, these environmentalists, if they get a, a quick subpoena or a questionnaire, they, they'll crumble pretty quickly and uh, the emails are all there. But the, the right are not putting any pressure on this and the left are trying to forget it ever happened. It's stunning to me. I And I, my wife and kids wanted to thank you both for allowing me on your platform because they're tired of me ranting at them. Um, getting that news out, getting this information out about a concerted at least 20-year effort by Putin to consolidate his ownership, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, in terms of natural gas production, oil production in, in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union in Russia, but then also pursuing this disinformation campaign. We know that he didn't just relegate that to the European continents, but it was extremely successful. And to your point, Bilem, to he could have spent a billion dollars and it still would have been money well spent for him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Actually, tell, tell people uh, how much of the Russian economy is dependent on the gas. How, what percentage of the Russian GDP gas sales to European countries and other countries bring in? Show, I mean, is it hundreds of billions? Well, I think uh, the late John McCain put it best is that Russia is masquerading as a country when in reality it's a gas station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without that income, without that income, this country could not. And so think about it. Putin looks at this, assesses the fall of the Soviet Union, and he says, what's my greatest asset? Well, he has the greatest reserves in the ground of natural gas in the world, number one in reserves. Some of that is difficult to get to, and some of that I'll talk about a little bit about later. But he knew that he had to weaponize his greatest asset in order to garner the kind of power that he wanted to pursue in this kind of neo-imperialistic view that I'm going to recreate the Soviet Union. You know, Europe, the EU is not a victim. They walked into this trap willingly. We had German banks that helped finance Nord Stream 2. We had a former German chancellor move on to the board of Nord Stream 2. Oh, my God. You know, they walked into this thing. They believed the propaganda that came out against hydraulic fracturing. And... The, the, the critical three are is that there's an over-reliance on renewable energy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Under-reliance on hydrocarbons. And they, they saw the closure of their nuclear and coal plants before they should have. Putin has be- delivered 30% less natural gas in the last six months to Europe through the three delivery points that Russia controls. He was planning this attack, has been planning this attack. And I, the bad news in my mind is that this isn't the end of it with the Ukrainian resistance. The next target is Latvia, yes, Lithuania, Estonia. So John, let's give people a, a, a sense of the dominance that Russia has in terms of, the, of, of natural gas in the world. How, no, much, that, how big is it? No, that, that dominance, let's say that it's three to four times. It's, I think there's a different way to ask the question, Anne, that's probably more important, is that for the European continent, for the EU, Russia's dominance is this, and this is my biggest concern. They can pipeline their natural gas to the EU, okay? The the US solution is liquefied natural gas imports. Mm -hmm. And so I've just, I let my mind wander and I envision three years from now that this this battle is going on and on and on. Well, there isn't by, by virtue of a US law, the Jones Act, there's no, liquefied natural gas tanker in the world that flies under a U.S. flag. But right now, today, we have 24 liquefied natural gas tankers headed to Europe. 
to kind of bail them out so that in January, our deliveries of natural gas by boat were greater in volume than what was coming in by pipeline from Russia. And I just so without that, yeah. without that, I mean, this is the lifeline to Europe, the absolute lifeline Ooh, to Europe. Yeah. But let me back up in granular from a granular standpoint. We can put three billion cubic feet of natural gas into a tanker. Okay, three billion. What does three BCF mean? That'll heat forty thousand homes for a year. Wow. When we freeze natural gas, we reduce its size from what would fill a beach ball would fit in a ping pong ball. But imagine, imagine three years from now, a Russian submarine sinking an LNG carrier in the Atlantic. Well, let me tell you one place: those LNG boats and ships will not be going. They will not be going to Ireland because at the moment there is a proposal to build an LNG import plant at Shannon. And the government minister for the environment, Eamon Ryan, who's a member of the Green Party, has written to the planning authorities with his ministerial, the planning authorities are supposed to be independent, with his ministerial stamp and crest on the letter saying that permitting this LNG plant to there would be senseless, would go against directly against uh, government policy and is will LNG imports will not be needed for Ireland's future energy needs. Now this is before the Putin oh, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and Ukraine. Yes. But he hasn't changed he hasn't changed his uh, um his opinion on this and is still I see tweeting about it opposing this LNG plant. So you know you talked earlier and we and before you come on we talked about it too. This is no should come as no surprise to anyone. And I talked about it earlier. Harold McMillan was asked by a reporter, the British Prime Minister, what's the, the biggest challenge for a statement today or for a statesman today? And he said, events, dear boy, events. And, and it was always one of those really awful quotes that I always hated because it, it sounded so intelligent. And it's like the elites, and we, I talked about this earlier, and it's like, you know what? There are no events. Everything's predictable. You know, the, the, the invasion of Ukraine is not an unpredictable event. Uh, you know, you could have made it easier to handle by diversifying your energy sources. You could have made it easier to handle by using your own energy, by importing energy. You chose not to do it. That's why you're vulnerable to this event. It wasn't a deus ex machina that was completely out of, you know, it wasn't a meteor hitting the earth. Russia has... You're so right. This, I think we have good kids because my kids suffered consequences due to their choices. So think about this. And this is this is the big question I think that needs to be asked now. Will the Biden administration choose climate change over supporting Ukraine and NATO? And, and they've already answered it. You're not gonna you're not gonna believe this bit of news. So Kadri Simpson is the head of the EU, she's the head of energy, she's the head commissioner for energy for the EU. She was in the US meeting with our Secretary of State February 11th underscoring how critically important liquefied natural gas imports from the U.S. to Europe were, what a lifeline it was, what a lifeblood it was, okay? A week, less than a week later, the head of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Richard Glick, you know, raised to the chair, chairman position by Biden, less than a week after this message from the EU, he just released new regulations, the first changes to those pipeline regulations since 1999 that in essence said climate change has to be taken into consideration before we approve any new natural gas pipeline. 
And then at the same time, the head of our Department of Energy has a hold on six permits to export additional natural gas to build facilities that would allow export of additional natural gas. So you've got your friend in Ireland that's trying to stop it there, but then we have the Biden administration that says, no, 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 no. Climate change yes. is more important to us. I mean, it's better, it's better for the Biden administration to send gas to Europe than almost ammunition at this stage. It is. I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And here's the, the lead time, and Putin knows this, the lead time to make up for his pipeline imports with LNG exports from the U.S., it would take us five years to get there. So in my mind, in his chess game and his attack on the former NATO countries as, as they're coming, he has five years to play with. But here's the other incipient and the horrible position on this. So natural gas prices in the U.S. right now for the next three years average about four and a half dollars, okay? In the EU, natural gas prices average between September and February, $26. During, right before Christmas, they shot up to $60. Oh my God. Okay? So we know now that most of the ammonia-based fertilizers, you take natural gas and 90% of ammonia is, comes from natural gas. Natural gas is the feedstock for ammonia. The majority of the ammonia-based fertilizers, uh, fertilizer manufacturers in, in the EU shut down six months ago because they couldn't afford the natural gas costs to turn into fertilizer. And so now you have a situation where we're not gonna have enough nitrogen-based fertilizer in the EU, throughout Europe, and some of the developing mm -hmm. countries to even produce what we need to produce. Guess where 13% of the, the wheat in the world comes from? Ukraine. Yeah. Guess where 12% of the corn in the world comes from? Ukraine. I mean, the, the catastrophic fallout from what's happening just in Ukraine right now you know, if people are tired of COVID, I'm telling you, hang on for the next 10 years. Oh, my God. This story is not going away. And this is not good news. But again, if you watch this, as I have for 20 years, he's playing out the first deal. And God bless the Ukrainians for what they're doing. Uh, they're trying to avoid it. But he will do to some city in Ukraine what he did to Aleppo. What? So, you know, it's I mean, it's all very disturbing. I mean, Phelan and I were talking about this earlier, and it's like, um, there's no real pleasure in being right about everything, but uh -huh. my God, we are right about everything. And Frack Nation was right about everything. Uh, we should have got, we should have gotten an Oscar for it. Um, what can be done? Like, so I, I have two questions actually. One is if fracking had been embraced in Europe, would, how, how different would things look right now? Sorry, I suppose it's more than that. If Europe had, had embraced fracking and Angela Merkel hadn't idiotically closed down all the nuclear capacity in Germany. And, and the coal. And the coal. If, we ha if that hadn't happened, what would the world look like now? What would the situation in Ukraine look like now? Europe would be energy independent. I'm telling you, there are so many shale basins located throughout the EU that had they pursued it in the way that we had, they'd be energy independent. And what's interesting is they're not blessed. China is not blessed with the shale basins that Europe has as a continent or the United States has or Canada has. So, but let me give you an idea what's happening in Colorado, okay? It's almost as if our democratic governor has taken a playbook or a, a sheet from the playbook that Putin has in the sense that in 2021, since January of 2021, we've only had five location permits granted, five. Okay, in the prior years, prior to uh, Polis, and I almost said Putin, and prior to Governor Polis coming into power, we would get 40 per month. So verse five, wow. 480. 
In 2022, right now, we only have 12 rigs running in Colorado. There should be about 60 to 70 based on current gas prices. Now, Colorado can't respond because our governor, despite a different vote in a referendum on this issue, put in place with the Democratic House and Senate in Colorado, put in place a, a law that you could not drill within 2,000 feet of a structure. It virtually eliminated 80% of our locations in Colorado. And we see this playing out in the numbers. The higher gas prices, the higher oil prices in New Mexico in 2020, there were 44 rigs running. There are 94 now. And just to, say, just to interrupt you there, John, I mean, to, to just to emphasize to people, the reason for that idiotic law in, in Colorado about the distance up is, is, and it's Gasland, by the way. Because that it was in was the anti-fracking movement. It was it was Gasland was the anti-fracking movement. It was it was that misinformation that was put out by Josh Fox, where he talked about the very famous story where he talked about an increase in breast cancer in the Fort Worth area, in the Dallas Fort Worth area, that this had been very well documented. This very big in- spike in breast cancer, complete nonsense. And that fact that was even fact checked by Reuters by the AP, complete nonsense. But he got away with it. He got nominated for Oscars and he got that message out. And the real world consequences are now seen in exactly what you've just described happening in Colorado, but also happening all across Europe, where none of this development happened. I heard somebody refer to what's going on that in Ukraine is the first new Green Deal war. Oh, yeah. I took just jump back. So Texas in 2020 had 105 rigs running with these higher prices, 308, a 300, a threefold increase. But no response in Colorado such that I was joking with somebody I work with, we need to change the C in Colorado to a K, comrade. Oh, yeah. They've taken away the choice. But look at it from this standpoint. There was a study done by uh, Colorado Mesa University that every rig is worth 208 jobs. Wow. So they decimated Western Colorado right now and really the denver Julesburg Basin yeah. by following that European playbook that we know is wrong. So we're coming to the end of the interview, actually, but I wanted to, here's the question I want to ask. What can be done now? What, what should happen now? What should Europe do now? What should America. the U.S. do now? The Europe, Europe, NATO should put a pressure on the United States to have a fundamental change in how we're approaching supporting them. And to what Phelan said, it's far more important to send 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas than 1,000 bullets to them right now. Because as long as Putin can leverage his energy, uh, his energy weapons, they have no choice there. So again, we need the Biden administration, we need California, Oregon, and Washington to allow for export facilities that they've killed everyone. There's not one LNG export facility on the West Coast, not one. And if we could do the same thing to quote unquote China or Asia, we wouldn't, but we can supply natural gas to the world that quite honestly offsets CO2 emissions that people are concerned about. I mean, it was really the, the shale revolution that allowed us to meet the Kyoto Protocol Correct. findings for CO2. But I think I'm very, very concerned now that, you know, even if we had a five-year lead time to solve Europe's problem with liquefied natural gas exports from the U.S. into Europe, um, we still have Mr. Biden for another, what, three years? Hmm. And I just don't see him putting... Ukraine and NATO ahead of his climate change policies. I just don't see it happening, unfortunately. Even with the Republican Congress and Senate, which I fully expect us to see by 2022. It's a bleak, it's a bleak picture, but- Very bleak, but our European allies need to understand what's happening within our country 
to stop export. And we have enough natural gas reserves in Western Colorado. We have five of the top 50, 50 in the world reserves. We have five of the top 50 reserves. We have enough natural gas reserves in Western Colorado to supply half of NATO for 30 years. Oh my God. And it's all locked up. We can't it's get exports. Yeah, we, yeah. we can't send it out and Ireland doesn't want it and other countries are, are there's and movements against suffer. it. Yep. They're, yep. Also, they're suffering for that choice. I mean, Ireland has passed a law too that, that they won't exploit any of natural gas fields in the, in the water around, or oil fields any, uh, in the water around them. Uh, if they, they're, they're, you know, when does enabling what Putin wants to do versus joining arm in arm with him, what's the difference in that? There isn't any. Putin must be so, he must be so amused. He must be so amused by the idiocy of all of these leaders all over the world, including here. It's It's, sad. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But the people of Ukraine Ukraine are the ones who suffer actually as a result. Well, think about those poor kids and those mothers that are suffering right now for the poor decisions and the poor or the lack of intellectual curiosity by any European politician. And I'm not a rocket scientist. I just started looking at this and following it and and saying, Oh my God. It's unbelievable. Can we ask you, can we ask you as well, actually, John, and we featured this actually in Frack Nation. Can you talk a little bit about Poland? Because obviously we have Magda here with us and this, it's, it's very fright. I mean, we actually featured Poland and the, and, the and, the, and, and the Ukraine, but I'm just specifically to Poland, how vulnerable Poland is to this Russian ability to turn off the gas. And we, we actually featured, I mean, I don't know how many years ago did Frack Nation come out? Where where are Poland at right now? Can you can you give us a sense of how um, how difficult their situation is right now facing? Uh, uh, the winter isn't over yet. No, it's not, and I think that their number is somewhat north of seventy percent reliance on on Russian gas. And here's the thing that I'm concerned about, and this may be too much in the weeds, but some of the pipelines that move natural gas from Russia to Poland run through Ukraine. Yeah. How long is it going to be before someone blows up one of those pipelines and yes, the Russians yeah. blame, even though the Russians will probably do it, blame the Ukrainians? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you I just know what I mean? And so just to let people know, just to let people know, by the way, it gets really cold in Poland, right? I mean, this is not Southern California, you know, this is not Florida. This is not, these are tens of thousands of people, millions of people also, who are t- 100% dependent to heat their homes on, on natural, natural gas, gas and who will die. And also it's who people- will die if they and don't also, get it. And also it's a, a very large population of people who are not wealthy and right. who their energy bill, that's exactly what we featured again in the in Frack Nation, where the energy cost is one of the most substantial percentages of the money that they have. And any slight increase in that puts them into a situation of choosing between food and heat. Like this is very, very extreme stuff. And, and you, you mentioned know, and you mentioned Latvia as well, by the way. And we have, you know, there are the, all those other countries that are in the same situation. How countries open up their arms more than any other country to the people fleeing Ukraine? Than Poland. The Polish. Correct. Well, can I just and I, can I just report on that that relatives of Magda's have twenty people living right now in their home in Poland that they took women, in 20, women and, 20 women and children who have come in across the border. I mean, it is a frightening situation. Um, 
that this is this is what's going on in real time. We're watching this in real time. And it's and, and there's no pleasure in the fact that we're right and that we were right about this a decade ago. Right. It's frightening. As you say, as you say, John, you know, and I mean, I actually do think you're a bit of a rocket scientist, but you're saying, you know, that you're not a rocket scientist. This information was not a secret. This was everywhere. We, people were talking about this. People knew this and made these other choices. It's it's and it's let me totally let me avoidable. Close just. Part of this plan, this 20-year plan, was to take over ownership of natural gas fields in Russia. Um, I'd encourage you to look up the name Inver, E-N-V-E-R, is the Ganshin. Inver ran BP's effort in Irkut, Siberia, at the Kovetka field, one of the largest fields, top three fields in the world. So the energy ministers of Russia, after they took over Sahalin, the LNG terminal, on the far east Pacific, they go visit Inver Zaganshin, the BP country manager for that effort. So imagine you're in charge of this effort to, to, to develop the largest natural gas field. Gazprom wouldn't give them access to pipelines. That was the first try. And then the energy ministers or the folks that are in charge of the environment came in and met with Inver Zaganshin on a Wednesday and said, you know what? We don't like your environmental record. We may pull your license. He must have said something that angered them because on Sunday he went out to his backyard in Irkut, Siberia. And an hour later, his wife went out and found him shot to death, murdered in his sauna in his backyard. And one of the BP people that, that commented on this murder said, well, I guess that's Russia's message for us to leave the country. Guess who owns that? Guess who is running that facility now, that production? And guess who just signed a $400 billion deal to sell natural gas to China out of that field, Gazprom. Okay, well, I mean, it's it's as you say, it's 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 very disheartening, and it's 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 really disheartening because it was it's avoidable. Very, very, it's very avoidable. It was very avoidable. Much, yeah, it was the most yeah. predictable event. In, but I thank in you too for what you did, you know, to to make Josh Fox look the fool that he is. Um, but unfortunately, I, to to your point, I think the damage was caused. And too many people believe this line about hydraulic fracturing, um, and it's we're paying the price for it now. The Ukrainians are paying a severe price for that right yeah. now. Yeah. You know, we, one would love to think that people will learn from this, but it's not the first time that Russia has shown its strength in terms of you know the energy supply. They've done this before, and no and, and no lessons were learned. You know, so, and so, that thanks, presentation John. that I showed you between 1990 and 2005. They interrupted natural gas supplies to Eastern European countries 55 times. Yeah. 55 times. And they never did that. Yeah, they never did that during the Cold War. My God, if there were, if there was, a, if it was a child in a classroom, you know, you'd, you'd say, look, this child Absolutely. is hopeless. This child is hopeless if it can't learn at this point, you know. 55 times. 55 times. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. Okay, John, listen, we really, really enjoyed and we really appreciate your thoughts today because, um, yeah, we need these kind of voices. We so need thank you, John. Of reasoning. Thank, thank you, John. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. An awful lot of things to think about there. Yeah. Um, and I think I think, unfortunately, it's like one of those things that we used to say before, that if people realized where electricity came from, if people at least had even that education of where their electricity mm -hmm. came from, they might think very differently when they vote. And I think it's equally the same, very same principle could be applied to Europeans who actually, um, and uh, you know, some of them are getting an education now. But um, as, as, as John just said, do you, this, this action, um, this kind of action, this kind of thing of, of stopping energy, for example, to Ukraine, shutting off energy to Ukraine has happened 55 times in the past. 
you would think at that point that people would have learned, um, but unfortunately, um, no, they're too smart. They're condemn, too, you know, what if you, they're if too you, smart to learn. They're too smart to learn. They're too elite. Yeah, they're to too learn. cool to learn. It's like I remember someone in Ireland. You know, it's a kind of off topic, but someone I knew was an alcoholic, and, and my aunt said. Yeah, and he's, and, you know, the problem with him is he's too smart, and therefore he won't stop drinking. And it's kind of counterintuitive. But, you know, being thinking yourself too smart is an awful curse sometimes. We're coming to the end of the show, but I wanted to bring just one piece of crazy California to you. Um, and I just it just struck me this, this story the other day, and I just, you'll see the headline there, you know. Um, so uh, California are considering having a Bill of Rights for cats and dogs. Um, and, uh, you know, they're very seriously considering this. And there are a number of reasons, uh, of parts of this bill that, that would be very important to them, that that cats and dogs, it'd be very, that they would, in, that they would, that they would add to the legal, you know, that they would put in laws, they would put in laws that made it compulsory that cats and dogs had daily mental stimulation and appropriate exercise, that they had nutritious food, sanitary, water and shelter, preventative and therapeutic health, preventative, you know, that they would have proper identification with tags, that they would be sprayed and neutered. And, you know, actually, I have no objection to it. You know, I'm fine. We love our cats. We love dogs. So I'm like, it's great. But I would just remind everyone that in California, you can have an abortion um, without your parents' permission um, when you're a minor. Up that to nine Calif- months. That in California, I was just going to yeah, that in California, you can have an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, basically for any reason, as long as you say that it's going to affect your health. And by the way, once people say that, if it's some, some health reason, you know, you can make up anything. You can say, well, you know, I'm feeling really depressed. It's just depressing me, you know. So that's it. So you can have, so that's the same, you know, so it's great. I think it's great that people in California care deeply about cats and dogs and want to actually have a bill of rights for them that would really protect, that they would not be treated in any kind of cruel way. But the idea that you have that right alongside having laws that will allow you to abort babies up to nine months is more of the craziness and the madness and the sadness and the tragedy of this lunacy that we have to live with here in California. But who knows for how much longer. Um, dun, 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 dun. You never know. We were in Florida, as we said the other day, and it's weather's very nice there. You never get cold. Um, anyway, we're, we've come to the end. I mean, it's, I think you'll probably notice this was kind of an unusual, um, an unusual podcast. We are, it's very, very upsetting what's going on in in ukraine and um as Phelan said our hearts go out to the people there and we know magda's family have taken in people and people sheltering and caring for people who have come across the border young children and their mothers all over um poland and the polish people themselves very very scared um as magda said the other day you know we've they've seen it before they've seen this before and it's it's a it's a very frightening history being um being reenacted again, um, and we're just hoping that it gets that it's that it's stopped and stopped very soon. Do you remember during COP twenty six, the big stumbling block to COP twenty six is the climate change conference was Poland's refusal to stop using its um, coal. coal industry, yeah. and you know, and then you've got Germany, which has uh, uh, which has and en- en- ended its nuclear industry. Uh, decimated this cold industry, all for these climate objectives. And meanwhile, and meet, meanwhile, Putin laughs. Yes, we're ho- we're hoping that that laugh is wiped off his face and soon. That's us for this week, and we'll see you in a week's time. And we're hoping the news might have improved by then. Thank you. Bye. Bye.